Hey, how you doing today? Uh, let me ask you a question. As, uh, as we're getting into the Word today, you can turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5 while I ask you this question. Have you ever, have you ever been frustrated? <laughs> Somebody just said yes. <laughs> let me finish the question. Have you, <laughs> have you ever been frustrated when you see somebody misunderstand something? Has that ever frustrated you? Got some, like, really knowing chuckles from that question. Like, you guys have been frustrated by, by some stuff. Let me tell you something that frustrates me. Um, it's this. It's this jersey right here. Was that Pastor Mark? I'm coming for you today. You're going to regret that you said that in about two minutes. This jersey frustrates me, or at least it brings frustration when people misunderstand it. You see, uh, there's something called the tyranny of recency, and that's where what has happened in recent history causes people to misunderstand the legacy of a thing. And you see, to me, the number two jersey for the Lakers means something special. And I, I wear this jersey from time to time, and every once in a while, someone is like, hey, is that a Lonzo Ball jersey? The problem with that, let me just put this in context. The problem with asking if this is a Lonzo Ball jersey, because Lonzo Ball was a Laker uh, from uh, 2017 and 2018. He played a grand total of 99 games for the Los Angeles Lakers, and they made it to the playoffs a grand total of zero times when he was on the Lakers. Is that a Lonzo Ball jersey? Recently, people, my nephew, I was wearing this jersey, and he goes, is that a Jared Vanderbilt jersey? Jared Vanderbilt has been a Laker for a grand total of 26 basketball games. He joined the Lakers mid-season last year. We like Jared Vanderbilt, but he hasn't earned the is that a Jared Vanderbilt jersey question yet. Let me tell you, friends, this is a Derek Fisher jersey. And... And it, it, it hurts my heart every time someone sees this number and misunderstands that this is a, a Derek Fisher jersey. You see, Derek Fisher was a Laker from 1996 to 2004. He left for a little while. He returned in 2007 and played for the Lakers again until 2012. He played a grand total of 915 games for the Los Angeles Lakers. Derek Fisher made 14 NBA Finals appearances, winning five championships, three in what's called a three-peat. Only two teams have ever done that in the history, the Chicago Bulls and the Los Angeles Lakers. When he returned to the Lakers for his second stint, they won back-to-back -back championships. And in 2004, during Game 5 of the Western Conference semifinals, Mark Rondeau will always remember that the Lakers were playing his Spurs. The series was tied at two games apiece. The Lakers were down by one point. The ball was going to be inbound from the sideline, and there was, John, how many seconds left on the clock? Point four seconds left on the clock. You see, Derek Fisher was the fifth option to play in that moment. Nobody expected it. And they inbounded the ball to Derek Fisher, who turned and shot and won the game by one point. 
utterly deflating the hopes and ambitions of the San Antonio Spurs, who lost that series in game six, Mark Rondo. This is a Derek Fisher jersey. So every single time someone asks me, is that a Lonzo Ball jersey or is that a Jared Vanderbilt jersey? No, this jersey is to commemorate the historic legacy of one Derek Lamar Fisher. And this number should be retired. Let it be so. Let it be done. This is the way I have spoken. Yet none of that is in this book, but it is deeply personal to me. Here, here's why this matters. This matters because when, when something is originally intended to be a thing and carry certain meaning, and then over time it comes to mean something other and utterly less than the original meaning, confusion happens. Right? Like some things become what people understand them to be, not what they actually mean over time. And this matters today because in our journey through the book of Ephesians, we are going to be talking about authority and submission and marriage. And some things become what the world thinks they are and not what they actually mean. And so it's important that you remember Derek Fisher today and honor his legacy as a reminder as we talk about submission and authority in the context of marriage, that what some people say a thing means isn't necessarily what God said it means when he set that thing in order. Does this make sense? Okay, so as you listen to our scripture reading today, I, I want you to think about what Paul is actually saying. and. And hold that in contrast to what the world has made this to mean. So Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 33 is our text for today. And it begins like this. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, because the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. He is the Savior of the body. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives are to submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. He did this to present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies." He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hates his own flesh, but provides and cares for it, just as Christ does the church, since we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Now, we'll pause right there just to, just to remind ourselves. It is sad that a lot of people would check out right here at this reading of Scripture and say, uh, you know, the, the way that the world talks about this issue and the way I perceive the church to talk about this issue, I don't want to have anything to do with this conversation. 
Our goal today, among other things, is to redeem the thing that God is actually saying to us, even if it means that we have to look a little bit about, uh, at what the world has done to what God said to us, right? You see, it's important that we, we say something like this. The, the secular understanding of, of ideas like patriarchy and feminism have done so much damage that a preacher can't even stand in the pulpit and say, wives, submit to your husbands, and husbands, love your wife like Christ loved the church, without preamble and preface and clarifying that we understand that the world is getting it wrong, and friends, sometimes the church has gotten it wrong. In fact, I would argue that you could probably tie a thread to a lot of the ways the world gets it wrong back to a lot of the ways the church has gotten it wrong. So we we have to make sure we're coming back all the way to the heart of what God is saying. I think another reason people might check out of a sermon like this or reading this passage is because they themselves are not a married person. And so I just want to talk to my friends who are single for a moment and let, uh, let you just hear this. It is not uh, helpful to you when the church makes you feel like because you are single, you are somehow lesser than and that all of the counsel of Scripture cannot be applied to you just because you don't have a spouse. That's unhelpful. And for any way that the church has done that, as a pastor, we say, I am so sorry that the culture of church and Western Christianity has been abusive and confusing to your singleness. And your lot in life is not you're half a person until you get married. That's wildly important that you understand that. You get to be a whole person in your singleness, whether that singleness is for a season or for a lifetime. And that's not my choice to say that. It may not even be your choice to say that. Ultimately, God has a, a say in that right? So single people, we love you. You are welcome here. You are welcome in this conversation. And I would go so far as to say that you have just as much to learn from this passage of scripture as I do as a married man. Uh, And the reason I can say that is because of the way Paul finishes his thought here. So get back into the text, and in verse 32, Paul finishes his point here by writing, this mystery is profound, but I am talking about Christ and the church. And then he says, to sum it up, each of you, each one of you is to love his wife as himself, and the wife is to respect her husband. So again, verse 32 is the reason that our married and single people alike can hear something from this, because at the end of the day, Paul is using marriage as a metaphor to point back to the relationship between Jesus and the church, right? So if you're single, then you're going to listen to this sermon as, what does this say to me as a single person about my relationship with Jesus? And if you're a single person who desires to be married, you're going to listen to this sermon saying, what is now the checklist that God would give me that looks like wisdom for the kind of person I would look for? Because if they don't line up with this, I'm not giving them my time or my life. Right? And if you're married and you're listening to this and you're discovering that the person that you are married to or within your marriage, the person that you currently are, does not line up with what Paul is saying here, then we have work to do. But we won't have the wisdom to know how to do that work or what the goal is to look like if we don't say what Scripture actually tells us that our marriage should look like and what our relationship to Christ should look like. 
So now, putting this back into its context, Paul has told us so far in this section of the book of Ephesians, he said, you were once darkness, but now you are children of light. He's told us how we should resist the empty arguments of the world, which this sermon is a great example. When the world tells us what marriage should look like, we come back to the word and say, no, thank you very much. We'll take God's standard right? Resist the empty arguments of the world. And then, and then he says, you should walk and live as wise people. This is what we talked about last week, taking our lives seriously, remaining sober, and being filled with the Holy Spirit. And the result of this kind of living in the light is that we would produce, or Jesus with and through us would produce a life-giving, God-honoring, mutually submitted community of spirit-filled believers. This is the goal. And even this year, as, we're, as our focus for this year at Life Church is to assemble or to build together the church that we cannot build on our own, the goal is to build a life-giving, God-honoring, mutually submitted, Holy Spirit-filled community. And we can only do that if we live the way God is telling us to live. And so then Paul begins to say, this is how you should live. He goes on to give examples And the first example that he gives of a mutually submitted, life-giving, God-honoring, spirit-filled community is the example of marriage. So, before we get into what he says to wives and husbands, let me just tell you two more things I want you to keep in mind. Uh, Number one, again, to clarify, if, if this sounds like I'm drilling this point home or beating a dead horse, I would rather just take an extra minute here to say this, then risk it being misunderstood or or missed entirely. When you hear words like authority and submission in the biblical context, we are not talking about the way the world does authority and submission. Biblical submission and authority is actually beautiful and life-giving. And a marriage and a relationship with Jesus is only healthy if each person plays the role that they are called and equipped to play. Yes? Amen? Similar to another place where Paul is talking about spiritual gifts, he says the Holy Spirit gives gifts to some people. He says, don't desire the gifts that that other people get. Just be satisfied and happy with what God has done in you and the gifts that he's given to you. Don't worry about what's going on with somebody else. In other words, play your role in the relationship with Jesus. Play your role in the relationship you have with other people as well. And if in marriage, then play your role within the marriage. And, 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 and there we go. I, I think I drilled down on, on that pretty clearly. And, and I was going to say even more about uh, to our single friends how much you belong here. But I, I think that we understand all of this. We're not talking about the world's understanding. And we're not talking only to married people. We are learning ultimately about our relationship with God. Okay, so that said, let's talk about what uh, Paul says to wives. Listen again to to what he says at at the beginning here. Uh, In Ephesians chapter 5, this is verses 22 through 24, he says, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Now, just for the context here, uh, when he says wives, we're talking about women who are married to men. A woman who is married to a man. If you are not a woman, he's not talking directly to you right now. And if you're not a married woman, he's also not talking to you directly to your life circumstance. The umbrella, he's also talking about you and your relationship with Jesus. 
Okay, can you hold those two things in tension all at the same time? I know you can because you're very smart. But he's saying, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord because the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. So he is the savior of the body. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives are to submit to their husbands in everything. And Paul repeats this instruction in other letters as well, just in case someone was like, oh, it was just a typo. That's a, but Paul didn't really mean to write that. He actually writes it in at least two other letters. In Colossians 3.18, he says, wives, submit yourself to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. And in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 2, he says, Wives, submit yourselves to your own husband, so that even if some disobey the word, they may be won over without a word by the way their wives live when they observe your pure, reverent lives. So notice some important things here. Number one, wives are told to submit to their husband, not to every man. The foundations of the church have been shaken. Sorry, I just patriarchy got to me for a second. Um, scripture says, wives, submit to your husband. It doesn't say, submit to every man in everything. <laughs> okay, the sin of the patriarchal system says that all women must submit to all men, which leads to all manner of problems, and many of them have been created by the church. Certainly the patriarchal system has infested the workplace and government and all over the world, specific, especially in Western culture. But it's in the church, it creates terrible theology. Teaching that women are not eligible for certain roles like preaching or pastoring, for example, is not biblical. And it is deeply rooted in a patriarchal misunderstanding of Scripture. Just for the record, Paul handed letters like this one to women to go and read and preach to churches all over. Women, ladies, you can preach. And you can pastor, and anyone that tells you that you can't, just don't bother. It's just not worth it. Just preach to somebody else who will listen. I'm just saying, creating a bad theology that says that 50% of the workforce of evangelism is, uh, is there a better word? Nope, stupid. There's not a better word for that. It's, it's dumb. It's, it doesn't make any sense. If you're a manager at work, and you have a task to be done. Are you going to cut your task force, your workers, by 50% arbitrarily? Hey, everybody with blonde hair, you're the only ones that can do this job. Why? No good reason. Just only want 50% of you to be able to do the work. It doesn't make any sense at all. It's actually just a really bad reading uh, that misinterprets what Paul is saying here to say women must submit to men when the scriptural standard is wives submit to husbands. And by the way, their husbands, not all husbands, not like as soon as I got married, I now have authority over all women. Ha ha ha. No. I have authority over three women. I'm married to one of them, and the other two are my daughters. And until some other guy comes along and is good enough to have authority over either one of them, I have authority over all three of them. 
I want that to sound terrifying. I'm not a scary person, but. <laughs> so wives are told to submit to their husbands, not to every man. The second thing I want you to catch here is that a wife's submission is a powerful ministry, a tool for ministry for leading their husband to Christ. Listen again what First uh, Peter chapter 3 says uh, in the message translation. It says, the same goes for you wives. Be good wives to your husbands, responsive to their needs. The, there, there are husbands who are indifferent to any words about God, but they will be captivated by your life of holy beauty. What matters is not your outer appearance, the styling of your hair and the jewelry you wear, the cut of your clothes, but your inner disposition. So a wife's submission is actually seeming to be in direct partnership with Jesus. Does this sound like someone whose authority and power and purpose and potential Jesus is not interested in? No. I know men who were led to Christ by the example of their wives. In fact, several of them are members of this church because their wives were faithful to the Lord and to them, but faithful. I mean, that's profoundly beautiful. Women work to point their husbands toward what they ultimately need to fulfill the purpose and mission of God and to submit their entire lives to Christ. And how do they do that? By beautiful inner disposition, by the way they live. There's a guy named Lee Strobel who was a journalist. He actually set out to disprove that Jesus is God and that the Bible was the word of God. And he did it out of frustration because his wife got saved. And she began to live differently in the house. And he goes, I will have none of this. I'm going to go prove with all my powers of journalism that Christianity is false. And along the way, you know what happened? His wife changed his life. He began to see that Jesus was actually a different woman or that his wife was actually a different woman because of Jesus. And he was so inspired and moved by that. And then as he began to study, secondarily, he then found, oh my goodness, it turns out the Bible actually is true. And Jesus actually is God. And so he has two things to thank for his own salvation. It was certainly, obviously, Jesus and the example of his own wife pointing him to Christ with her beautiful life. So the biblical understanding of submission is not a judgment on value or worth. Rather, it means to rank yourself under the authority of another person. And this is helpful. Remember, the world is going to twist that. But this is actually helpful if you consider a, a military setting. A person, for example, with a higher ranking is not a better or more valuable human being. They simply have the kind of authority that has been given to them so that those who come under their authority can partner with them to complete the mission. But if it wasn't for rank and order and authority and submission in a healthy way, the mission would not be accomplished. Consider the Roman soldier in Matthew chapter 8 who comes to Jesus when he's in Capernaum and he says, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed in terrible agony. He said, Jesus said to him, am I to come and heal him? Lord, the centurion replied, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority. Having soldiers under my command, I say to this one, go, and he goes, to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. Hearing this, Jesus was amazed. Hearing what? 
his understanding of submission and authority. Jesus was amazed and said to those following him, truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with so great faith. <gasps> Do you realize what he just said? The greatest faith I've experienced in Israel comes from a Roman soldier, the oppressor? Why? Because in his position of authority, he understood submission. That's actually pretty profound. That's pretty incredible. Because this Roman soldier understood the power of submission, he did not try to fix his servant on his own and in his own power. Instead, he had faith to bring what was broken to God. And even Jesus came under the authority of the Father. Jesus is not less than the Father. But he willfully came under the authority of the Father. Why? To complete the mission. We call this submission. Biblical submission is not about value and worth. It is about choosing to embrace the structure and order of the kingdom because in doing so, your life points to that kingdom. This is why submission must be a choice. In fact, Pastor Mike Winger, uh, in a sermon on this exact passage, he says, notice this, when God tells wives how to behave, he tells wives how to behave. He doesn't tell husbands how their wives ought to behave. This is hugely important because one of the principles we get here is that a wife does this willfully and intentionally. She is not forced to, to submit. That's abuse. I'll read that again. She is not forced to submit. That's abuse. God does not call a husband to make sure his wife is in submission. That's abusive. This is simply not a call on the husband. So submission is not done to her. It is not done for her. See, our culture has made submission offensive. And anytime you say that submission should happen, you go, how dare you? You're abusing me. You're trampling on my freedoms and on my rights and but wise women actually understand that they have incredible freedom to do whatever God puts in their heart because they're in partnership with the one who covers and gives them love and care and life. And wise women further understand that their submission is actually a beautiful picture of healthy relationship with Jesus. Find a godly wife and you will find a beautiful picture of what the church should look like. Not put down, flourishing. Not bound, free. Not depressed, overjoyed, happy. Biblical submission does not say women have no value or power and must submit to all men in every area of life. Rather, it is a powerful picture of kingdom structure that points back to Jesus in the same way that Jesus is the leader of the church. Jesus is not an abusive dictator who systemically keeps us from having choice or from experiencing freedom. He is the leader of our lives, leading us into freedom and righteousness. He is the one who himself is submitted to the Father, who does the will of the Father, and invites us to do the same, and then covers us with love as we submit to his authority and his wise way of living. We submit to Jesus because he is good and trustworthy, and we are under his authority and, and when we are under his authority, we find that we are fully safe and fully alive. It's the world that has twisted the idea of submission and says that it, is, it brings death and it is abusive. Jesus says submission is actually the way to life. 
And by the way, all of this works because Jesus is never not good and trustworthy. Jesus is never an unsafe harbor. So wives then are responsible to model the image of the church in submission to Jesus. Which means that husbands also have a pretty important role to play. And fellas, if you thought you were getting off easy today, I propose as one of you uh, men and as a husband for nearly 20 years, um, I think that Paul actually goes harder on us. I'm looking at some husbands in the room. Are we ready? Okay, let's do it. Ephesians 5, let's read again. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. He did this to present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. No one ever hates his own flesh, but provides and cares for it just as Christ does for the church since we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Now, if wives play the role of the church in the great metaphor of marriage, then husbands play the role of, it's okay to say it, Jesus. And right here is where we get in trouble, right? Right here, when men are like, yeah, I play the role of Jesus. That's right. Ah, Historically, this is exactly what we've done. We've been like, woman, I play the role of Jesus. You'll submit to me. Because we completely misunderstand who Jesus actually is. And then when we're told you're supposed to be like Jesus, we go power, authority, dominion. (laughs) And we forget sacrifice and death and pain. Oh, no. (laughs) This is the way. Look, men for generations have done abuse and have ruined lives. Ruined lives. Because they have allowed the call to be like Jesus to go to their head instead of to their heart. This should be wildly humbling. Think who Jesus is. Men, husbands, you are called to be like him. The man who taught us to turn the other cheek. The one who said, I will give life to the world by dying. He says, love your wife as Christ loves the church. What does that look like? You die. But why? Why? Why did he do it? Because he knew the end goal, right? In fact, Paul, Paul writes about it like this in verse 26 and 27. He did this to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of the water by the word. He did this to present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. Jesus sacrificed his own life so that his bride, the church, would be made holy, pure, spotless, and blameless. Biblical authority is not about dominance. It's about responsibility and care. 
In other words, when I married my wife nearly 20 years ago, on this stage, standing right here in a tuxedo that for some reason had tails. <laughs> Cut me some slack. I was 19. I didn't know what I was doing. When I said, I do, you know what I was saying? I do take responsibility for your spirituality. In the same way that I have responsibility for the spirituality of my daughters, Hannah and Selah, I have responsibility for Sharon's spirituality. Husbands, you don't have to like that. That doesn't have to make you feel comfortable. But remember, love her the way Christ loved the church. If it makes you feel uncomfortable, your lot is to die anyway. Welcome to the journey. Right? This is our responsibility to care. To what end? That she would be presented to Christ holy spotless, pure. But notice this, fellas. Notice that Jesus doesn't wait for humankind to be perfect and spotless and pure and righteous and have our act together before he came in the flesh to be uncomfortable for us, with us, and die because of us. He didn't wait in fact, he knew that his dying was the only way we could be made pure. And there's a lot of husbands out there who are like, well, I'll start loving my wife like that when she's... No, just stop right now. You're done. Just, just done. You should have finished the sentence earlier. Just go, I'll start loving my wife. Period. Don't say another word. And this whole, I'll love her when she does fill in the blank business. Listen. Listen. I say this to you with the love of the Lord. That's abuse of your marriage vow and of her spirituality. Because it says that as I play the role of Christ in this marriage, I'm not humble. I do not love you unconditionally. I have unreasonable standards. And I won't always tell you what they are. Now you tell me a husband that treats his wife like that is a good husband. I'll call you a liar to your face. <gasps> we got through it, guys. It's okay. It's going to be all right, fellas. It's going to be all right. Here's why. Because Paul says when you love your wife like this, you actually love yourself. Why? Because you get the joy of watching life. You get the joy of watching someone come fully alive like Jesus did. You get the joy of, of washing someone with the word and seeing what it looks like when someone goes from whoever they were to whoever they were meant to be. This is the great joy. This is worth dying for. And fellas, if you think that you didn't marry someone who's worth dying for, remember what, what, what Paul writes, uh, or what, what Peter writes, actually, in, in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. He says, Husbands, in the same way, live with your wives as an understand, in an understanding way as with a weaker partner, which doesn't mean she's lesser than. It just means that, like, physically we understand that men are, like, stronger than women. And just don't, don't, uh, just, just breathe. Okay. Here's what he says. Showing them honor as co-heirs of the grace of life. Say co-heirs. 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 Not secondary heirs. Not after you heirs. Not get the leftovers heirs. Co-heirs. Co. Co means with. Means same as. Co-as. Heirs of the grace of life. Why? 
so that your prayers will not be hindered. Do you, do you know why it's the great joy of your life, husbands, to love your wife the way Christ loved the church? Because you're married to royalty. And if she doesn't look like that to you, that's probably not her fault. Why? Because authority means responsibility and care. Man, I'm just so tired of men saying, I will when she does. No, she will because you did. Amen? I'm, gonna, I'm saving myself a lot of counseling time right here. And by the way, I've been married for almost 20 years, and I still need to remember this because I'm not perfect. And it humbles me to think that I'm supposed to be like Jesus to my wife. I think, as Paul tells us, that our wives are fellow heirs, deserving of honor, not to be put down, held lovingly in high regard. A husband is then called to treat his wife like royalty. And if he does, if he does, then God will answer his prayers. Fellas, husbands, if prayer seems like an ineffective waste of time to you, don't ask yourself, does prayer work? Ask yourself, how do I treat my wife? See, husbands are the head of the marriage. Sin has led us to use that as a power play. It should actually be the lower position. Like Christ, I am to go low so that my wife can flourish. Right? As the head of the church, I'm the first in line for death and discomfort and surrender and sacrifice. It's me. I go first. Now, with that also comes the responsibility of being the ultimate decider of things. And the way that works in my marriage doesn't have to look like the way that works in your marriage. Work that out between the two of you and Christ. My wife and I have, a, have a, an incredibly equal marriage when it comes to decision-making and figuring out processes. And there are very few times where she and I have a hard time getting on the same page about stuff. And that just has to do with the fact that I'm married to my best friend in the whole world who I, I tend to agree with her about a lot of stuff. And, and sometimes it takes work for her to tell me why I'm wrong. But here's what's beautiful about my wife is that when she does that, she doesn't go, man, let me tell you all the reasons that you're wrong. And tell, I don't know why. My, <laughs> why in my brain did I make you sound like a 55-year-old smoker? <laughs> a voice I've never heard you make. Because <laughs> this is about partnership, isn't it? Look, when I'm healthy in my relationship to Christ, as a member of the bride of Christ, the body of Christ, the submitted one, when I'm healthy in my relationship to Jesus, you know what happens? I go, Jesus, what do I do in this moment? You know, oftentimes my prayer life with Jesus, he goes, what would you like to do in this moment? What do, what, I've actually heard the Lord ask me this. What do you think would please me? I go, oh, Jesus, just tell me. Just, just tell me what to do. <laughs> he goes, no, I'm so committed to relationship. I love you so much, and I want you to flourish so much that I want you 
to work this out in relationship with me. All right? This is what healthy marriages should actually look like, and this is what the healthy church should actually look like. Now, for clarity, again, wives are to submit to the authority of their husbands so long as he is leading them into holiness and not into anything sinful. Now, remember that sin is both doing the things that you shouldn't do and not doing the things that you should do, right? So, for example, a woman whose husband fails to lead his family to church, that woman would be right, correct, not in sin if she led herself and her children to church, right? And, in their, and, and leads her children in their spiritual lives. If my husband will not do it, then the responsibility falls to me to make sure, and that's not rebellion, correct? Okay. In the same way, if a husband tells his wife to do something that is sinful, she should resist and rebel. Like I heard a story about a husband that went to a pastor and uh, the husband and wife went to the pastor and the wife was saying, my husband wants me to, to sign on this tax return form, but I know that he lied on the tax return. What do I do? Because he's telling me I have to submit to him, but I feel like if I sign this tax return, this form, that I will be in sin. And the pastor said, you're right, don't sign the form. Your husband is in sin. And so she was right to not submit to him in sin. Is that helpful? Yeah. That doesn't always mean that a husband, uh, every time he leads a wife into something she doesn't like, is leading her into sin. But hopefully your relationship is healthy and functional, that you can talk and pray that through, right? Husbands, your daily question should be, if Jesus were the one married to my wife, how would he love her? And I confess that there's been days where if Jesus was married to my wife, the way he would love her wouldn't be the way I chose to. How, how would he lay down his comfort? How would he lead her to flourishing? So the high call of the husband is to go low so your wife can be fully alive. And the result of loving your wife this way, she will become fully alive. She will be healthy. She'll be able to love you in return in, in, in beauty and in wholeness and in holiness. This is, this is the gift of marriage. Again, verse 28. This is why Paul says, he who loves his wife loves himself. Now, we come back to the church. Remember the context. Remember everything that Paul is saying. He's, he's not just writing about husbands and wives. He's writing about life-giving, God-honoring, mutually submitted, spirit-filled communities. Here's an example of what this looks like, right? That's, that's what he's writing about. And he ends all of this by coming back to the ultimate picture. And he says, I'm writing about the church. Right? Ephesians 5, verse 32, this mystery is profound, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. Ultimately, this is about us and Jesus. Jesus went low so we could be made alive. He presented himself in brokenness and uncomfortable life and death so that we could be brought into holiness and beauty. As we examine marriage as a metaphor, then, we can learn a lot about healthy marriage. But we also learn, and I would say we learn even more about ourselves and Christ. So today, as we 
end our service. We're going to enter into our monthly tradition here at Life Church. We take communion together. And there's been something interesting and special, I, I think beautiful, and, and at least for me, very meaningful, and I think for some of you as well, in, in just a subtle shift in the way we've been taking communion. And that's been that we've been inviting you to come forward and receive communion. And I think there is something interesting about that, that is you would come forward to receive communion. Uh, if you come forward as a husband, what would it mean for you to walk up to the table and receive communion as a husband? What would it mean for you to walk up to the table and receive communion as a wife? For all of us, what does it mean for us to walk up to the table of the bridegroom who is Christ as a member of the body of Christ that he calls the bride and to receive communion today? What does it mean for you? In fact, we're going to end our service today not just taking communion, but giving you an opportunity as you come to take communion to think through some helpful questions for you. And in fact, as you come to think about the body that is broken and the blood that is shed, I want to also invite you to think about several things. For all of us, I want to invite you today as you come to receive communion to ask yourself this, how has my view of submission and authority clouded my submission to God? Like, have, I, have I leaned into the world's understanding of these issues and missed the point that God was trying to make? Is there, is there any kind of sin in my life that is holding me back in my relationship to Jesus? This should be a question we come every time to the table with. If you're a married person today, ask yourself questions like, does my marriage reflect God's image of Jesus and the church? What part do I have to play in bringing my marriage into alignment with God's desire? And maybe you could even go so far as to ask yourself, is there something I need to repent to my spouse for, uh, for any kind of failure in submission or in sacrifice? If you're a single person today, you would come to the table and you can ask questions like, can I receive the lessons of marriage as, a per, as personal to my relationship with Jesus? And do I need to hear Jesus remind me that I am not less than just because I am not married? And again, for you, is there any area where I would need to repent today for the way I've carried my identity within the church? Now I'm going to invite you just now to get, begin to come and receive communion. Here's how I want you to do this. There's a couple of tables, one to my right and one to my left, and I just want to invite you to come. Over the next moment, this will take a couple of minutes. As you're walking up, you're thinking about these questions. You take a cracker and a cup of juice and make your way to your seat. Keep thinking about these questions. When you're ready, over the next few minutes, when you're ready, you're just going to pray. I'll lead you in a few minutes into the prayer that you can pray if you feel like you're stuck. But at your seat, you have a conversation with Jesus about anything that you need to say. Maybe you're going to take communion with your spouse today. This would be a great opportunity for you to clarify anything, repent if it's needed, ask for forgiveness if it's needed, bless your spouse. That's always a good practice. Take communion together. If you're single and you don't want to take communion to, together or alone today, uh, any of our couples or any other person in this room, let's welcome one another into each other's lives as well today. And if you're a single person you just want to say, I want to take communion by myself, you're welcome to do that. If you're a married person, you say, I just have some business I need to handle with Jesus. Sweetheart, we'll talk later. You can do that too. But come now. Begin to come and receive. God, as we come, make our way forward to receive these communion elements. We remember that this represents your body and your blood shed 
so that we can be made whole and our sins can be forgiven. We do this, as you said, in remembrance of you. As we take these next few minutes, help us, God, to hear what the Spirit of God would say to us, to our singleness or to our marriedness, to our lives as sons and daughters of God. Speak to us now, God. Thank you, Lord. There's a shorter line over on this side of the room if any of you guys want to just jump over here. Not trying to rush you, just giving you a heads up. another minute here. I'm going to just invite you, if you haven't yet, speak to Jesus about any of these questions as they land in your heart, anything you heard today that was challenging. If there's something you would say thank you to God for, as a reminder, we always come to Jesus in these moments and we say thank you, God, that your body was broken so that I can receive wholeness. Thank you, God, that your blood was shed so that my sins can be washed away.
Jesus, we thank you for your body and your blood. We thank you that you have called us into union with you. We thank you, God, that on this journey in our singleness or our being married, in our being a part of your body, that all together, unified as one, you call us your bride and you say that you love us. We are grateful. We are so grateful. God, would you help us in the ways where we need to dismantle and deconstruct what the world says about marriage and about submission and authority and sacrifice and what it means to be a husband and what it means to be a wife and what it means to be married and what it means to be single and help us to find you at the heart of all of these things. Help us to find you at the heart of all of our lives. Friends, I want to pray a blessing for you. You know that that's our practice if you've been here before. This is how we'll end our service today. But before we do that, I just want to say that if a sermon like this has brought up some questions for you, uh, if, it, if it makes you feel uncomfortable in a way that requires a conversation, we want to make ourselves available to you for that. Um, the easiest way that you can find space for that conversation is to come and let me know after service. You can find Mark over here. Wave your hand, Mark. You can find Sharon over here. Wave your hand, sweetheart. Uh, there's a number of different people. If you would just say to somebody, hey, I think I need to talk to somebody about, uh, about that sermon that I heard today. Just let somebody know, and there's a good chance that the person you're talking to will be able to let us know. Or if you want to just shoot us an email, you can email me directly, tim at avlife.church or info at avlife.church or just go on our website and just send us an email and say, I, I need to talk to somebody about that message that I heard on Sunday. We would be honored to sit with you. And we believe that the Word of God and the Spirit of God is powerful and clear where you have questions and where you have brokenness or pain that there is healing in the love and the name of Christ. Amen? So know that we will be praying for you. We will be praying for our church in all of the ways that a message like this kicks up the dirt in our lives. And we are trusting that under all of that, that God will lead us together. Amen? Amen. Let me pray a blessing for you, and then we will be dismissed to go and honor the Lord. Friends, I pray this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. May your submission to Christ bring you into the good life that Jesus freely offers. May your marriage be a beautiful picture of the relationship Jesus desires with his church. May your singleness be a beautiful picture of the relationship Jesus desires with his church. May we together honor God's heart for marriage, submission, authority. And may our love and our lives point those we love and those who are watching us to Jesus, the one who created love and gave us life. May you be blessed and may you be a blessing. Amen.